This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Ecology and Revolutionary Thought by Murray Bookchin, writing as Lewis Herber, originally published in 1964. Introduction In almost every period since the Renaissance, the development of revolutionary thought has been heavily influenced by a branch of science, often in conjunction with a school of philosophy. Astronomy in the time of Copernicus and Galileo helped to guide a sweeping movement of ideas from the medieval world, riddled by superstition into one pervaded by a critical rationalism, openly naturalistic and humanistic in outlook. During the Enlightenment, the era that culminated in the Great French Revolution, this liberatory movement of ideas was reinforced by advances in mechanics and mathematics. The Victorian era was shaken to its very foundations by evolutionary theories in biology and anthropology, by Marx's reworking of Ricardian economics, and toward its end, by Freudian psychology. In our own time, we have seen the assimilation of these once liberatory sciences by the established social order. Indeed, we have begun to regard science itself as an instrument of control over the thought processes and physical being of man. This distrust of science and of the scientific method is not without justification. Quote, many sensitive people, especially artists, unquote, observes Abraham Maslow, quote, are afraid that science besmirches and depresses, that it tears things apart rather than integrating them, thereby killing rather than creating, unquote. What is perhaps equally important, modern science has lost its critical edge. Largely functional or instrumental in intent, the branches of science that once tore the chains of man are now used to perpetuate and guilt them. Even philosophy has yielded to instrumentalism and tends to be little more than a body of logical contrivances, the handmaiden of the computer rather than the revolutionary. There is one science, however, that may yet restore and even transcend the liberatory estate of the traditional sciences and philosophies. It passes rather loosely under the name of ecology, a term coined by Haeckel a century ago to denote, quote, the investigation of the total relations of the animal both to its inorganic and to its organic environment, unquote. At first glance, Haeckel's definition sounds innocuous enough, and ecology, narrowly conceived as one of the biological sciences, is often reduced to a variety of biometrics in which field workers focus on food chains and statistical studies of animal populations. There is an ecology of health that would hardly offend the sensibilities of the American Medical Association, and a concept of social ecology that would conform to the most well-engineered notions of the New York City Planning Commission. Broadly conceived, however, ecology deals with the balance of nature. Inasmuch as nature includes man, the science basically deals with the harmonization of nature and man. This focus has explosive implications. The explosive implications of an ecological approach arise not only from the fact that ecology is intrinsically a critical science— in fact, critical on a scale that the most radical systems of political economy failed to attain, but it is also an integrative and reconstructive science. This integrative, reconstructive aspect of ecology, carried through to all its implications, leads directly into anarchic areas of social thought. For in the final analysis, it is impossible to achieve a harmonization of man and nature without creating a human community that lives in a lasting balance with its natural environment. Part 1. The Critical Nature of Ecology Let us examine the critical edge of ecology, a unique feature of the science in a period of general scientific docility. Basically, this critical edge derives from the subject matter of ecology, from its very domain. The issues with which ecology deals are imperishable in the sense that they cannot be ignored without bringing into question the viability of the planet, indeed the survival of man himself.
The critical edge of ecology is due not so much to the power of human reason, a power that science hallowed during its most revolutionary periods, but to a still higher power, the sovereignty of nature over man and all his activities. It may be that man is manipulable, as the owners of the mass media argue, or that elements of nature are manipulable, as the engineers demonstrate by their dazzling achievements. But ecology clearly shows that the totality of the natural world, nature taken in all its aspects, cycles, and interrelationships, cancel out all human pretensions to mastery over the planet. The great wastelands of North Africa and the eroded hills of Greece, once areas of a thriving agriculture or a rich natural flora, are historic evidence of nature's revenge against human parasitism. Yet none of these historical examples compare in weight and scope with the effects of man's despoliation and nature's revenge since the days of the Industrial Revolution and especially since the end of the Second World War. Ancient examples of human parasitism were essentially local in scope. They were precisely examples of man's potential for destruction and nothing more. Often they were compensated by remarkable improvement in the natural ecology of a region, as witnessed the European peasantry's superb reworking of the soil during centuries of cultivation and the achievements of Inca agriculturalists in terracing the Andes Mountains during pre-Columbian times. Modern man's despoliation of the environment is global in scope, like his imperialism. It is even extraterrestrial, as witnessed the disturbances of the Van Allen Belt a few years ago. Today, human parasitism disrupts more than the atmosphere, climate, water resources, soil, flora, and fauna of the region. It upsets virtually all the basic cycles of nature and threatens to undermine the stability of the environment on a worldwide scale. As an example of the scope of modern man's disruptive role, it has been estimated that the burning of fossil fuels, coal and oil, adds 600 million tons of carbon dioxide to the air annually, about 0.03% of the total atmospheric mass. This, I may add, aside from an incalculable quantity of toxicants. Since the Industrial Revolution, the overall atmospheric mass of carbon dioxide has increased by 13% over earlier, more stable levels. It could be argued on very sound theoretical grounds that this growing blanket of carbon dioxide, by intercepting heat radiated from the Earth into outer space, will lead to rising atmospheric temperatures, to a more violent circulation of air, to more destructive storm patterns, and eventually to a melting of the polar ice caps possibly in two or three centuries, rising sea levels, and the inundation of vast land areas. Far removed as such a deluge may be, the changing proportion of carbon dioxide to other atmospheric gases is a warning of the impact man is having on the balance of nature. A more immediate ecological issue is man's extensive pollution of the Earth's waterways. What counts here is not the fact that man befouls a given stream, river, or lake, a thing he has done for ages, but rather the magnitude that water pollution has reached in the past two generations. Nearly all the surface waters of the United States are polluted. Many American waterways are open cesspools that properly qualify as extensions of urban sewage systems. It would be a euphemism to describe them any longer as rivers or lakes. More significantly, large portions of groundwater are sufficiently polluted to be undrinkable, even medically hazardous, and a number of local hepatitis epidemics have been traced to polluted wells in suburban areas. In contrast to surface water pollution, groundwater or subsurface water pollution is immensely difficult to eliminate and tends to linger on for decades after the sources of pollution have been removed. An article in a mass circulation magazine appropriately describes the polluted waterways of the United States as, quote, our dying waters, unquote. This despairing apocalyptic description of the water pollution problem in the United States really applies to the world at large. The waters of the earth, conceived as factors in a large ecological system, are literally dying. 
Massive pollution is destroying the rivers and lakes of Africa, Asia, and Latin America as media of life, as well as the long-abused waterways of highly industrialized continents. Even the open sea has not been spared from extensive pollution. I speak here not only of radioactive pollutants from nuclear bomb tests and power reactors, which apparently reach all the flora and fauna of the sea. It suffices to point out that the discharge of diesel oil waste from ships in the Atlantic has become a massive pollution problem, claiming marine life in enormous numbers every year. Accounts of this kind can be repeated for virtually every part of the biosphere. Pages can be written on the immense losses of productive soil that occur annually in almost every continent of the Earth on the extensive loss of tree cover in areas vulnerable to erosion, on lethal air pollution episodes in major urban areas, on the worldwide distribution of toxic agents such as radioactive isotopes and lead, on the chemicalization of man's immediate environment, one might say his very dinner table, with pesticide residues and food additives. Pieced together like bits of a jigsaw puzzle, these affronts to the environment form a pattern of destruction that has no precedent in man's long history on the earth. Obviously, man could be described as a highly destructive parasite, who threatens to destroy his host, the natural world, and eventually himself. In ecology, however, the word parasite, used in this oversimplified sense, is not an answer to a question, but raises a question itself. Ecologists know that a destructive parasitism of this kind usually reflects a disruption of an ecological situation. Indeed, many species, seemingly highly destructive under one set of conditions, are eminently useful under another set of conditions. What imparts a profoundly critical function to ecology is the question raised by man's destructive activities. What is the disruption that has turned man into a destructive parasite? What produces a form of human parasitism that not only results in vast natural imbalances, but also threatens the very existence of humanity itself? The truth is that man has produced imbalances not only in nature, but more fundamentally in his relations with his fellow man, in the very structure of his society. To state this thought more precisely, the imbalances man has produced in the natural world are caused by the imbalances he has produced in the social world. A century ago, it would have been possible to regard air pollution and water contamination as the result of greed, profit-seeking, and competition, in short, as the result of the activities of industrial barons and self-seeking bureaucrats. Today, this explanation would be a gross oversimplification. It is doubtless true that most bourgeois enterprises are still guided by a public-be-damned attitude— as witness the reactions of power utilities, automobile concerns, and steel corporations to pollution problems. But a more deep-rooted problem than the attitude of the owners is the size of the firms themselves. Their enormous physical proportions, their location in a particular region, their density with respect to a community or a waterway, their requirements for raw materials and water, and their role in the national division of labor. What we are seeing today is a crisis not only in natural ecology, but above all in social ecology. Modern society, especially as we know it in the United States and Europe, is being organized around immense urban belts at one extreme, a highly industrialized agriculture at the other extreme, and capping both a swollen, bureaucratized, anonymous state apparatus. If we leave all moral considerations aside for the moment and examine the physical structure of this society, what must necessarily impress us is the incredible logistical problems it is obliged to solve, problems of transportation, of density, of supply, raw materials, manufactured commodities, and foodstuffs, of economic and political organization, of industrial location, and so forth. The burden of this type of urbanized and centralized society places on any continental area is enormous. If the process of urbanizing man and industrializing agriculture were to continue unabated, it would make much of the earth inhospitable for viable, healthy human beings, 
and render vast areas utterly uninhabitable. Ecologists are often asked, rather tauntingly, to locate with scientific exactness the ecological breaking point of nature, presumably the point at which the natural world will cave in on man. This is equivalent to asking a psychiatrist for the precise moment when a neurotic will become a non-functional psychotic. No such answer is ever likely to be available, but the ecologist can supply a strategic insight into the directions man seemed to be following as a result of his split with the natural world. From the standpoint of ecology, man is dangerously simplifying his environment. The modern city represents a regressive encroachment of the synthetic on the natural, of the inorganic, concrete, metals, and glass, on the organic, and of crude, elemental stimuli on variegated, wide-ranging ones. The vast urban belts now developing in industrialized areas of the world are not only grossly offensive to eye and ear, but are becoming chronically smog-ridden, noisy, and virtually immobilized by congestion. This process of simplifying man's environment and rendering it increasingly elemental and crude has a cultural as well as physical dimension. The need to manipulate immense urban populations to transport, feed, employ, educate, and somehow entertain millions of densely concentrated people daily leads to a crucial decline in civic and social standards. A mass concept of human relations, totalitarian, centralistic, and regimented in orientation, tends to dominate the more individuated concepts of the past. Bureaucratic techniques of social management tend to replace humanistic approaches. All that is spontaneous, creative, and individuated is circumscribed by the standardized, the regulated, and the massified. The space of the individual is steadily narrowed by restrictions imposed upon him by a faceless and personal social apparatus. Any recognition of unique personal qualities is increasingly surrendered to the needs, more precisely the manipulation of the group, indeed of the lowest common denominator of the mass. A quantitative, statistical approach, a beehive manner of dealing with man, tends to triumph over the precious, individualized qualities approach that places its strongest emphasis on personal uniqueness, free expression, and cultural complexity. The same regressive simplification of the environment occurs in modern agriculture. The manipulated people in modern cities must be fed, and feeding them involves an extension of industrial farming. Food plants must be cultivated in a manner that allows for a high degree of mechanization, not to reduce human toil, but to increase productivity and efficiency, to maximize investments, and to exploit the biosphere. Accordingly, the terrain must be reduced to a flat plane, to a factory floor, if you will, and natural variations in topography must be diminished as much as possible. Plant growth must be closely regulated to meet the tight schedules of food processing plants. Plowing, soil fertilization, sowing, and harvesting must be handled on a mass scale, often in total disregard of the natural ecology of an area. Large areas of land must be used to cultivate a single crop, a form of plantation agriculture that lends itself not only to mechanization but also to pest infestation. A single crop is the ideal environment for the proliferation of pest species. Finally, chemical agents must be used lavishly to deal with the problems created by insects, weeds, and plant diseases, to regulate crop production and to maximize soil exploitation. The real symbol of agriculture is not the sickle, or for that matter the tractor, but the airplane. The modern food cultivator is represented not by the peasant, yeoman, or even the agronomist, men who could be expected to have an intimate relationship with the unique qualities of the land on which they grow crops, but the pilot and chemist, for whom soil is a mere resource, an inorganic raw material. The simplification process is carried still further by an exaggerated regional, indeed national, division of labor. Immense areas of the planet are increasingly reserved for specific industrial tasks or reduced to depots of raw materials, 
Others are turned into centers of urban population, largely occupied with commerce and trade. Cities and regions, in fact, countries and continents, are specifically identified with special products. Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Youngstown with steel, New York with finance, Bolivia with tin, Arabia with oil, Europe and America with industrial goods, and the rest of the world with raw material of one kind or another. The complex ecosystems which make up the regions of a continent are submerged by the organization of entire nations into economically rationalized entities, each a way station in a vast industrial belt system, global in its dimensions. It is only a matter of time before the most attractive areas of the countryside succumb to the concrete mixer, just as most of the eastern seashore areas of the United States have already succumbed to subdivisions and bungalows. What remains in the way of natural beauty will be debased by trailer lots, canvas slums, scenic highways, motels, food stalls, and the oil slicks of motorboats. The point is that man is undoing the work of organic evolution. By creating vast urban agglomerations of concrete, metal, and glass, by overriding and undermining the complex, subtly organized ecosystems that constitute local differences in the natural world, in short, by replacing a highly complex organic environment with a simplified, inorganic one, Man is disassembling the biotic pyramid that supported humanity for countless millennia. In the course of replacing the complex ecological relationships on which all advanced living things depend with more elementary relationships, man is steadily restoring the biosphere to a stage that will be able to support only simpler forms of life. If this great reversal of the evolutionary process continues, it is by no means fanciful to suppose that the preconditions for higher forms of life will be irreparably destroyed and the earth will become incapable of supporting man himself. Ecology derives its critical edge not only from the fact that it alone, among all the sciences, presents this awesome message to humanity, but because it also presents this message in a new social dimension. From an ecological viewpoint, the reversal of organic evolution is the result of appalling contradictions between town and country, state and community, industry and husbandry, mass manufacture and craftsmanship, Centralism and Regionalism, the Bureaucratic Scale, and the Human Scale. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.